August 16th, 1951. A small village in the south of France begins a new day. Pont Saint-Esprit is your typical picturesque French rural town, full of history, a medieval bridge, a 15th century church, and rustic stone streets. Most of the town's 4,500 inhabitants likely thought they'd wake up to another normal day, but this wouldn't be the case. You see, the village was suddenly, and quite violently, the subject of an outbreak. Most people who suffered from the illness began feeling a little off. They felt depressed and agitated, like I feel when I see the washing up pile get larger and larger. Then the victims would begin to suffer from nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain and diarrhoea. But this wasn't some common stomach bug, a touch of gastroenteritis. No, doctors observed patients with low temperatures, excessive salivation, insomnia and a particularly foul odour about the patients, which I assume wasn't just the diarrhoea. The most concerning symptom came in the form of hallucinations from the most severe cases. Most of these hallucinations involved fire and animals. One person reported snakes and fire coiling around their arms. Another tried drowning themselves because they thought their belly was being eaten by snakes. One person hallucinated that they were a plane and threw themselves out of a second floor window, breaking both legs. Yet they continued to run 45 metres after doing so. Which is far beyond the level of commitment you can expect from most modern airlines. Another patient saw his heart escape his body through his feet and begged a doctor to put it back. Because of the hallucinations, many people had to be given straitjackets and some were reportedly chained to beds. Four people died from the affliction, according to Dr Gabay from Pont Saint-Esprit, who wrote in the British Medical Journal. Of these four, the doctor described three being of old and in bad health. Only one seemingly healthy young 25-year-old male died. All the other patient symptoms stabilised after six days, and no new cases occurred after a 48-hour period. Neither was there any sign that this illness had affected anyone outside the village. It was all localised. So, what the hell happened? Well, at first this was a mystery. How did about 250 people start hallucinating and suffering other symptoms? Well, it turns out it was likely something to do with the village's morning ritual. Most academic sources believe that Pont Saint-Esprit's favourite bakery contaminated their bread with ergo, poisonous fungus that occurs naturally in rye. It is named after the French word for the bony spurs found on the back of a rooster's leg. The fungus sticks out of rye similar to a rooster's spur, you see. Indeed, there is a high risk of poisoning when consuming ergo. Symptoms include nausea, vomiting, muscle pain, weakness, as well as vision problems and confusion. This theory led to the incident being referred to le pain maudite, the cursed bread. But some people aren't really convinced by the ergo poisoning. In his 2009 book A Terrible Mistake by investigative journalist H.P. Abarelli, he claims that the Pont-Saint-Marie poisoning was a covert experiment by the CIA. Abarelli found CIA reports whilst researching the suicide of Frank Olsen, a biochemist working for a Swiss pharmaceutical company who fell out of a 13th floor window about two years after the bread poisoning. The report includes notes between a CIA agent, 
and an official at the Swiss pharmaceutical company. And mentions the secret of Pont Saint Esprit and explains the poisoning wasn't caused by ergo or mould, but by diaphylamide, an ingredient in LSD. It's what the uh, D stands for, in case you didn't pick that up. The theory goes that the CIA experimented with the drug on the inhabitants of Le Pont Saint Esprit because they wanted to use the drug on the enemies of the United States. It was the Cold War, you see. If the US Army bombarded an area with the drug, then hopefully their enemies would end up hallucinating and running around like headless chickens, whilst the US could just stroll in and occupy an area. A neat trick. For those who don't think the US would intentionally drug the population of a rural French village, you clearly don't know the history of the CIA. Still, not everyone is convinced by the CIA's involvement, and to be fair, there's not much proof beyond some circumstantial evidence. Plus, with the CIA, it's a bit like the boy who cried wolf. Sure, they've done lots of horrible dodgy things, but that makes it easy to blame something that isn't their fault on them. Some historians reject both the ergo and LSD theories. Some believe that the cause of the poisoning was from a chemical used to artificially bleach the flour at the bakery. Whatever the cause was, it still eludes our knowledge today. The question as to what poisoned the inhabitants of Pont Saint Esprit still remains a mystery. However, there's still one thing we can learn from La Pam Mordite, and that's that humans have to be careful when they source their food. My name is Tom, and this is A Bite of History. Episode 2 Lessons Learned. So far in this podcast, I have mostly focused on how food has benefited humanity and in the case of episode 1, potentially aided our evolution. But for this episode, we're going to take a look at how food can be potentially dangerous for humans. (gasps) What a plot twist. Specifically, we're looking at a couple of instances where despite knowing that certain practices and foods can be dangerous, people didn't learn their lesson. But as I hinted in some social media promotion for the episode, coronavirus might be one of those mistakes where we haven't got it in our thick skulls that certain food practices can be dangerous. But before I descend into my hopefully not too cynical attempt to make this podcast topical with COVID-19, I'm going to bring us back to the opening story of the cursed bread. The most commonly held theory is that the town of Pont Saint Esprit was infected with bread poisoned with ergo fungus from rye. If this is the case, then this wasn't the first time France had an issue with ergo, or ergotism, as the infection caused by the fungus is known. It's time to go back to 10th century medieval France, because that's just what medieval Europe always needs, an outbreak of some horrific pestilence. Honestly, don't be a medieval peasant if you can help it. It's not a long, interesting, or particularly fulfilling life. A 17th century historian named, and let's hope I get this right, Francois Eudes de Meseret wrote of a plague that heavily impacted the south of France in the 10th century. De Meseret wrote, The afflicted thronged to the churches and invoked the saints. The cries of those in pain, 
and the shedding of burned-up limbs alike excited pity. The stench of rotten flesh was unbearable. I'm not sure how he knew the smell of rotten flesh was unbearable, since there was actually seven centuries difference between his account and the events. But that's okay. Clearly he's a historian with a flair for the dramatic. But his writings were not about the bubonic plague, but in fact, ergotism. Not that the medieval peasants of southern France knew it was caused by poisonous rye bread. They believed it was something spiritual in nature, something they called St. Anthony's Fire. So, why did they call it St. Anthony's Fire? Well, that needs an explanation of who St. Anthony was. And that's not necessarily that easy, as there's quite a few St. Anthony's. There is Anthony of Antioch, which has a nice alliteration to it. Anthony of Padua, who is probably the most famous St. Anthony. Anthony the Hermit, even though there were other St. Anthony's who spent their lives as hermits, but there you go. Anthony the Younger, which I would like to point out strangely, there is no St. Anthony the Elder. There's Anthony Marie Claret, patron saint of weavers, because he was clearly that cool. And there's Anthony of Kiev, Anthony of Florence, Anthony of Rome, Anthony of Sia, and Anthony of St. Anne Galva, who all get the distinction of being named after where they were from. Thankfully, none of them lived in one of the numerous places around the world called St. Anthony. Otherwise, you know, they would have been called St. Anthony of St. Anthony. Fortunately, I know the St. Anthony we need is St. Anthony the Great, who was an Egyptian Christian monk who lived in the 3rd and 4th centuries as a hermit. St. Anthony is known for his spiritual battle against the temptations of the devil. These temptations included the devil disguised as a monk offering bread during a fast, as well as wild beasts, women, and soldiers that would often beat the monk and leave him near death. Satan also caused St. Anthony's visions of many other temptations, which have been interpreted by many artists, such as Salvador Dali and Hieronymus Bosch, who is most known for those very fantastic and disturbing depictions of heaven and hell. Honestly, you don't get more goth than medieval Europe. It's an emo's paradise. Anyway, St. Anthony resisted all attempts from the devil with the power of his faith. Getting back to ergotism, or should I say, St. Anthony's fire, people believe that since they were suffering vivid hallucinations from ergo poisoning, that the similarity with St. Anthony's temptations by the devil was too similar to be a coincidence. Throw in the fact that illness caused burning sensations in their limbs, just like hellfire, and clearly the afflicted were being tested by the devil, and only their faith could save them. These accounts also match up with the cursed bread from Pont Saint-Esprit, where victims of the outbreak often hallucinated fire and snakes, which is all very brimstone and fire. Conveniently for all those suffering from ergotism in medieval Europe, the Order of Hospitallers of St. Anthony relocated some relics of St. Anthony from Constantinople to a small town in France. Soon the relic became known as a cure for ergotism, and the location became a pilgrimage centre. Over the course of a few centuries, the order had built near enough to 370 hospitals all over Europe, including Germany, Spain, Italy and France. These hospitals would have been pretty grim places, as people suffering from ergotism tended to suffer from gangrene, and as a result often amputated their limbs. In fact, in France, the hospitals were called 
Hospitu des Desembes, Hospitals of the Dismembered. Of course, this reputation was unsurprising, considering victims of the illness would display their amputated limbs at the entrance of the hospital as an offering. Personally, I would like a nice flower bed or something outside my hospital entrance, but I'm a journalist, not an architect, so what do I know? You might be surprised to hear that the Order of St Anthony's Hospitals actually had some success in curing their patients. Was this because of the holy relics? Perhaps it was the lard-based ointment called St Anthony's Water that they applied to the sick. Or was it the wine, made from grapes near the location of the relics, that was given to ergot riddle presents, naturally called St Anthony's Wine? These monks stayed on brand at all times, clearly. Well, chances are that some people got better in the Order's hospital because they fed the patients bread not made from rye. The Order could afford it, the peasants could not. You see, rye bread was cheaper, and therefore a lot more popular with the lower classes of medieval Europe. The upper stratum of society tended to eat uninfected grains. And to be honest, ergo aside, rye bread is disgusting. Like so much food history, St Anthony's Fire is an obvious example of how wealth could help you retain your health. The sad thing is that this was not the first case of ergotism in history either. An Assyrian tablet records how a particular grain caused pustules to grow on the ear in the 7th century BC. Persian texts also mention how grass led to miscarriages in women, which was another effect of ergo poisoning. It would seem that these lessons were lost to history. Many lessons are lost to history. Many are ignored. Sometimes we do listen to them, and other lessons we're still learning. In some cases, events that happened decades ago have yet to show all their impacts. And that's something that's slowly becoming apparent with coronavirus. So, what's coronavirus got to do with the history of food? COVID-19 is very current. Even historians that argue the events of yesterday can be considered history would find it hard to argue that coronavirus is now history to the public. I'm going to further make an outrageous claim that Chairman Mao is potentially to blame for this virus, even though he died 44 years ago. So yeah, you're just going to have to indulge me before I tie this all together. But stick with me, because first we need to understand how coronavirus has likely come to be in the first place. Now, I'm not going to explain what coronavirus is, or how the world is being affected by it. If you aren't aware of this, you've not just been living under a rock, but you've probably got your head so far buried in the ground you probably could tell me what the Earth's mantle tastes like. On December 8th of 2019, a patient with pneumonia-like symptoms in the city of Wuhan in China sought medical aid. By the end of December, Chinese authorities began to accept that there was an unknown virus being spread throughout the city and country. This is, of course, the beginning of the worldwide pandemic we all know and love, COVID-19. You know the rest. But the next event of interest for us happened on the 1st of January. Hunan Seafood Wholesale Market was identified as a possibility for the centre of the outbreak. Now, this seafood market was something we call a wet market, which is popular in China and other parts of Asia. The belief is that freshly slaughtered meat and fish is far superior in flavour to the kind you might find in a supermarket. They are named wet markets after the water that is sloshed around the place to keep it cool and the food fresh. 
whilst it might not be quite as hygienic as a supermarket, wet markets have existed far longer than the first true refrigerators, so they are a strong part of Chinese culture, and to remove them would be very damaging to local economies and communities. Most health concerns have been resolved by improving standards such as expanding the size of the market and regulations such as not allowing live animals on site. The problem is not every wet market is well regulated in China. I don't suppose you might hazard a guess as to which wet market wasn't well observed by Chinese officials? Yeah, that's right. Wuhan seafood market was unregulated. And even more unfortunately, it had a prominent section which included live wild animals. Wildlife sold in wet markets like the one in Wuhan include badgers, snakes, foxes, civet cats, beavers, peacocks, marmots and rabbits. All these animals are kept in cramped quarters, often in cages stacked upon each other. Not exactly the most pleasant environment, before you throw in throngs of customers into the market. Coronaviruses are a very large group of viruses that are known to infect animals and humans. Based on current evidence, it looks quite likely that COVID-19 was passed between either bats or pangolins, kept in the Wuhan wet market, and onto humans. Now we can easily see the link between food and coronavirus here. But where's the history? For that, we need to find out why wildlife food became popular in China. So, if you're looking for someone to blame for the reason we're baking banana bread and watching Tiger King for the third time, it's time to point our fingers at Mao Zedong. Before I begin to get into Chairman Mao's part in creating the conditions for coronavirus, I think it is worth setting the scene for communism in the mid-20th century, as I know a lot of people don't know much about the history of China. Right, so set your timers. Here's about 50 years of Chinese history condensed into two minutes. Three, two, one, go! At the beginning of the 1900s, China was ruled by the Qing Dynasty, a form of government where the country was ruled by emperors and empresses. And broadly speaking, this was the sort of way China had been run since prehistory. This is a huge generalisation, FYI. But it was pretty clear that the Qing Dynasty was on its way out, partly due to an increasing amount of regional warlords, and partly due to corruption, and partly due to Western interference, such as the Opium Wars, where Britain said, how dare you ban the use of recreational drugs? We were making a lot of money selling it to you. And the Boxer Rebellion, where a lot of Western powers, as well as Japan and Russia, fought together to put down a Chinese rebellion, looking to remove foreign influence. Eventually, in 1911, a bunch of revolutionary forces rose up and deposed the Qing dynasty, creating the Republic of China. But I ask you to find a revolution in history that has ever gone smoothly. Yeah, I thought not. The Republic of China has a pretty turbulent history with a lot of infighting and Japanese invasions into China, and the First World War making things very complex. The air quote Republic of China was essentially a military dictatorship that struggled to, to manage control of a very large country. In 1923, China stabilised a bit by the KMT, that's the military dictatorship, sealing a pact of cooperation with the newly founded Communist Party known as the CPC, ending regionalism. But this lasted until 1927 when the KMT began the White Terror, killing lots of Communist Party members. CPC leader Mao Zedong naturally started a civil war over this. The civil war didn't really go that well for CPC and Mao. But in 1937, Japan invaded China, and when Mao did propose a truce with the KMT and formed a united front against the Japanese, the KMT agreed. The KMT didn't do an amazing job defending against the Japanese, and this led to a lot of Chinese people throwing in their hat with the communist bandwagon. Mao and the CPC didn't end up fighting as much as the KMT against the Japanese, which meant when Japan surrendered to the Allies in 1945, ending World War II, the CPC were a lot stronger than the KMT. It was only one year before the Civil War started again. By 1949, Mao and the CPC had pushed the KMT out of China and formed the People's Republic of China. The KMT moved into exile in Taiwan, which is still technically the Republic of China, something you shouldn't mention over dinner with the People's Republic. There you have it, half a century of Chinese history in less than two minutes that leaves Chairman Mao in charge of a united China. And united it mostly was. 
but mostly because any opposition was brutally suppressed by the Chinese Communist Party. With Mao in control, he began to start implementing communist economic policies, which means making private industry the property of the state, and more importantly for us, turning farms into collectives. So, by making farms into collectives, I mean taking land that was privately owned and sharing it between 20 to 30 households, which would work the land. This wasn't particularly popular with farmers who had originally been able to live off their own land. But this method was too slow for Mao. He wanted China to industrialise quickly. So, Mao decided to enact his great leap forward. A campaign to reorganise the country's massive population. There was some opposition from other Communist Party members, but probably only a little bit of dissent. We're talking about a regime here where disagreeing with Mao meant forced labour in a mine, or rather kindly volunteering to donate your organs for profit. After you've been executed, of course. Anyway, the Great Leap Forward saw millions of Chinese peasants mobilised to drop their farming tools and go into the heavy industry such as mines, cutting trees or smelting metal. Meanwhile, the collective farms were made even larger and turned into massive communes. They experimented with unproven methods such as chopping up dry corn stalks and placing them with seeds they planted. Amateur economists out there will probably notice there's going to be some issues here. You can't scale back on a massive agricultural sector and create a load of small-scale industry without expecting a deficit in food production. Not to mention when the Chinese government emphasises giving jobs to people on the basis of fanaticism to the communist cause rather than their expertise at farming. After Mao's Great Leap Forward began in 1958, it wasn't long before grain supplies ran low. Not ideal, since it accounted for 80% of the country's food energy. This was quietly covered up with fabricated reports that China's grain production was at record highs due to communal farming. Something that became increasingly hard to believe for Chinese peasants, as their plates became emptier. Drastic measures were clearly required. But don't worry, Mao and his cronies had a cunning plan. If China could rid itself of pests that ate their grain supplies, that would surely solve the crisis. So, the Chinese government created the Four Pests campaign. The population of China was encouraged to fight an all-out war against mosquitoes, flies, rats and sparrows. Children ran around with fly swatters, posters of farmers fighting off rats were placed around China, and people with guns took to the countryside. The campaign was very successful. People got creative bashing pots and pans together until sparrows died of exhaustion, destroying their nests and shooting them out of the sky. In fact, the campaign was too successful. As any primary school science student today knows, you don't mess with the food chain. Sparrows are a natural predator of everyone's favourite biblical pest, the locust. And oh boy, were the locusts happy with the lovely juicy crops that were around, especially with their major predator nowhere to be found. And just before you think things can get any worse, bam, a drought came along. The perfect storm for the Great Chinese Famine. It's hard to know how many people died as a result of the Great Leap Forward and resulting famine, but estimates reach up to 45 million deaths. That's more than the First World War for reference, by a considerable amount, and only a little bit less than the amount that died during the Second World War. Mao definitely has a lot to answer for. <clears throat> oh, what do you want? Really? Oh yeah, the whole coronavirus angle. Um, 
so how does all this relate to COVID-19? Well, skip forward a few decades after Mao's death and China's food problems still remain an issue. So, in 1978, the communist government relents and gives up control of food production, allowing private farming. Whilst large companies began farming all the usual stuff, wheat, pigs, cows, chickens, etc., smaller landowners decided to catch wild animals and begin breeding them in order to feed themselves. People would farm turtles, bats, or snakes, for example. The Chinese government, seeing this new source of food, shrugged their shoulders and said, hey, if it fills a hole, then we're okay with it, which meant the wild farming industry began to grow. Furthermore, in 1988, the Chinese government created the Law of the People's Republic of China on the Protection of Wildlife. Yes, I can hear you at the back. Stop sniggering at the idea of China being a people's republic. I'd like to see the Forbidden Palace one day, and I don't want to be thrown in prison straight off the plane, okay? Anyway, this law made wildlife in China property of the Chinese state, and therefore protected all the wild animal farming industry by law. Essentially, wild animals became a natural resource, and the Chinese government actively encouraged the domestication and breeding of wildlife. So, if you're an absolute madman and decide you want to start a farm for wild bears, then you can start a farm for wild bears. Before long, wild animals raised in these farms began to work their way into those wet markets we were talking about earlier. This could include illegal endangered animals such as tigers and pangolins. I think you can see where this is going. In 2003, we received a warning about the kind of virus that could emerge from wild animals in wet markets. Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome, known to you and I as SARS, spread to 8,098 people globally, with the outbreak being traced to civet cats sold at a wet market in southern China. Fortunately, the Chinese government learnt their lesson in 2003 and closed the wet markets and prohibited the sale of wild animals so that no future viral pandemics could ever happen. Oh, wait, no. A few months after the SARS outbreak, China lifted these restrictions. And even better, in 2016, they made it legal to farm endangered species such as tigers and... <sighs> pangolins. You know the rest of the story because you're living it right now. So, a quick recap. Chairman Mao creates a massive famine that makes some Chinese farmers desperate enough to resort to farm wild animals. The communist regime, happy for any effort to produce more food, actively encourages the practice. Mixing random wild animals in poor conditions in wet markets creates deadly viruses like the COVID-19. Which leaves us with the question, should we be adding the current global total of another 774,000 deaths from the coronavirus to the millions that Mao Zedong has already caused? Well, I guess that's up for debate. But if you want my opinion, which I'm going to assume because I am amazing, we really can't blame Mao for coronavirus. Don't get me wrong, I'd really like to. God knows Chairman Mao was evil to the bone. Up there with other historical figures such as Hitler, Stalin, Ivan the Terrible, Nero, King Leopold II of Belgium, and Katie Hopkins. But ultimately, whilst I think Mao created the conditions that contributed to coronavirus, I think there's just a few too many steps between to wholly blame our much-loved chubby receding hairline dictator. What this story represents is that once again humans don't consider the lessons they could learn from the history of food. 
whether it's a small village in the south of France recreating their favourite medieval outbreak by eating poisoned bread, or the government of the world's most populated country being more interested in making up for their past mistakes by feeding people with wild livestock that causes global pandemic. Some people just never learn. History is a complex web of events that is often hard to interpret and use to predict the future. However, if a sarcastic journalist slash amateur historian trawling the internet in his underpants is able to see lessons you should have learnt years ago, you're in trouble. By the way, if you've read in the news that China has permanently banned the trade of wild animals for eating, then you might be thinking that they have finally learnt their lesson. Well, before you come to that conclusion, let me tell you that they're currently recommending using bile from bears in an injection to cure coronavirus. We're doomed.